Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. And if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. And uh, if you were with us last week, you know that we looked at that passage, and we're looking at it again because there's some wonderful truths that we were not able to explore uh, because there's just so much here, uh, but uh, hopefully this morning we'll be able to explore those and really think about them a little bit more in depth. And I probably should have had you remain standing, so if you're willing and able, let me invite you to stand again as we sing, as we, not sing, as we uh, read. Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for God's people for building us up in our holy faith. Let's pray and ask him to bless us as we look at this passage this morning. Lord Jesus, we give you praise and thanks. This is just a, a small explanation of what you have done for us, but it is so big and immense in its beauty, in its scope, uh, in its reach. And so we pray this morning as we take a look at these few verses that you would give us hearts that would be able to expand and be able to take this in, minds that would be able to reach beyond ourselves and to grasp what is contained in here. And we pray that our lives would be transformed and changed as a result. Would you bless us? And Lord, I pray that you would bless me. I'm handling holy things and my hands are grubby and dirty. And so I pray that you would be pleased to speak through someone you've called to do this even when you knew they were unable. Bless us and be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. A friend told a story a few years ago to me about uh, when his wife and he went uh, skiing in Vail. And so they were up in the winter. This was kind of a dream for them. And so they got on the ski lift. And uh, I don't, I've, most ski lifts I've ever been in have like just two people in it, which is really good because I, I typically fall out of the ski lift at the end and it just you know, doesn't mess, won't mess people up that, as many that way. But uh, in Vail, they have four people. And so as the, the, the 
the ski lift came around the corner. There was already somebody sitting in the ski lift. And so they had this couple, my friend and his wife, get in. And the wife sat beside the lady, and he sat on the other side. And as they were riding up, this is their dream. They've gone to Vail for the first time. And they're talking about, where do you want to go do lunch? Where do you want to do this? And they were trying to get their bearings. And all of a sudden, the person who's sitting beside them, this lady with these big kind of like bling sunglasses on, started talking and giving recommendations about, well, you should go to this restaurant. And because there's, there's a chef there, and he's such and such. And if you can get this person to wait on you, blah, blah, blah. And then said, and then maybe for tonight, there's this great place to go. And she started just rattling off all these really kind of trendy places in Vail to go get something to eat. And so they're taking notes and, oh, this is, this is fantastic. And so finally, they're beginning to think, this person's really in the know on, on Vail, Colorado. Who is this person? And so they started, they changed the subject away from this and they just started chit-chatting with the person a little bit and trying to figure out who this person is. And so just before they got off, they found out who the person was on the ski lift with them. And uh, the, the, my friend Richard German said, I'm so-and-so. And, he sa- and she said, I'm Ivana Trump. <laughs> and uh, that's when they got off. Now he was in a support-based ministry, so he thought, I should have asked her for support. Um, <laughs> But it's kind of interesting, you know, in the most mundane of places, a place that they completely unexpected, they met somebody who's kind of like, you know, very well known in the United States, a name in and of herself. And uh, if you can understand that, you can understand a little bit about what we're talking about this morning. Because in Jesus' life, as he lived, uh, there were times when people were, were questioning, who is this? Who is this in this cart with us? Who is this in the world with us? Because he speaks and the winds and the waves obey him. He speaks and drives out demons. He speaks and a guy comes out of a tomb. Who is this? Now, upon the resurrection of Jesus, they got a much deeper insight into who he was by the power of the Spirit and the revelation of who Jesus is. But what we're talking about this morning is really from the early church and really from, and from the Apostle Paul. And we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about uh, something important about Jesus' identity, something important about Jesus' heart, and something important about Jesus' people when we come to recognize who he is and what he's done for us. Okay? The first of those, something important about Jesus' identity. Now... The passage we're looking at is very important because the loudest cultural voices about the identity of Jesus say that Jesus' identity is lost to us in the annals of history, right? It's just gone. We don't really have access to who Jesus really was and what people really thought about him. And what they say is because, you know, the things written about Jesus were not written until maybe the second or third century, long after the time of Jesus, And that's why this passage is so important for us. And now the reason people can make those kinds of claims in the 1800s is because people didn't have access to all the manuscripts that we now have have access to. People did not have the scientific dating techniques for dating old manuscripts and see how old is this thing. But we have that now. And so the thinking has really changed for a lot of people. Modern scholarship now shows that the claims about the divine identity of Jesus didn't develop over time. They were instantaneous with the eyewitnesses who saw them. So as we look at this letter that Paul wrote, Paul wrote the book of the letter to the Philippians around 60 AD. And so there were people who were eyewitnesses to these events, the life of Jesus, who saw them firsthand, who could could corroborate and teach about what had happened. This was written in the lifetime of Jesus' immediate followers. So there were people who were alive, who saw Jesus' ministry, saw his death, his burial, and his resurrection, right? So that's pretty important. 
But it buried in the midst of these verses is something that's even earlier, most scholars think. So in verses 6 through 11, most scholars will look at this and say it's a different style than Paul. It's, he doesn't, the vocabulary is different from what Paul normally uses. And verses 6 through 11 are thought by, across the board, most scholars, was an early hymn that was sung by the early church that Paul is quoting. We sang a song from the 1600s. We sang a song from the 1700s. They're singing songs from early on in the Christian tradition because these are the songs about who Jesus is, and they're writing these new songs about Jesus. So it was probably like, probably like us quoting from Amazing Grace or something. And so what we're doing when we read this is we're getting a glimpse into the beliefs about the identity of Jesus from the early church. They knew because they had seen the resurrected Jesus and they had conversed with him about who he was and his identity. And so this hymn, we're going to take apart just a little bit and say, what did they know? Not just that they knew it, but what did they know about Jesus uh, within the first generation of people who, uh, after Jesus' resurrection? Number one, verse six, he says, who though he was in the form of God, now, what he's saying is this. You go back to the commentaries. I, I read about six or seven commentaries just to make sure I wasn't, you know, I was like, I'm understanding everybody's on the same page here. Is what he's saying is, by the word form, is he saying what God is, Jesus is. Who God is, Jesus is. So the things that we can say about God, and, you know, if you look, there's a document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it asks the question, who or what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Those things can all be said about Jesus, even the part about infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. We use words like uh, omnipresent, omnipotent. Those also describe Jesus because he's the second person of the Trinity. So here in these verses where he, sa he says, uh, though he was in the form of God, he's not, it's not saying he has one characteristic or he's a little bit like God. It's saying, he is God himself. The nature of God is in Jesus. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Verse 6 also says this. It says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to or a thing to be grasped. So what it's communicating is Jesus, before he was, uh, took on human flesh, he was equal to God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, equal in glory, honor, and splendor. So that's Jesus. He's equal. He's not lesser than. Uh, he's not a smaller version. He was equal to before he came into the world. And then number three is in verses 9 through 11, we read this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he says very clearly, clearly that God gave Jesus the name that is above every name. Now for most of us, when we hear that, we think, well, the name that is above every name is Jesus. And guess what? The name of Jesus has become the name that is above every name. Uh, it, it is above every name. But almost across the board, every scholar, every commentary says the same thing. That's probably not the name that he's talking about here. When it talks about Jesus, uh, God highly exalted him and bestowing on him the name that is above every name, most scholars think he's talking about a different name. 
it's talking about the Old Testament name of God, which God gave, spoke to Moses when he said, I am, which is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And so most scholars look at this when it says, God gave him the name that is above every name. It's saying, he's saying Jesus is the Old Testament God. Now, how did they get that? Well, where is that coming from? Well, in the Old Testament, when you see the, the name of God written in English, it's a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Have you noticed that when you're reading through the Old Testament? That, that's a title, Lord. And the reason it's done that way is because Jews got to the point they considered Yahweh, the name of the Lord, in the Old Testament, too holy to speak. So when they were reading the Old Testament, when they got to the name of God, instead of saying Yahweh, they would say Adonai or Adon, which is the Hebrew word Lord. And so they wouldn't pronounce the name of the Lord God. And so when the Greek version of the Old Testament was written, they didn't write in Yahweh in the Greek. They wrote Lord, L-O-R-D. And so our English translations follow that in the way that we translate this. And so when we read through this, here's a good example in Psalm 110. I'm going to put that up for me, Paul. Psalm 110 says, the Lord, you see that? That's the name, Yahweh. The Lord says to my Lord, that's a title, Lord, Adon, Yahweh, and then Adon, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So there's an example of it. Now in the New Testament, we don't see a differentiation between capital L, capital O, capital R. We don't see that. And so when we come in here to verse 11, and back in Philippians, it says, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, most commentaries are pretty convinced it's saying Jesus Christ is the Lord God, the Old Testament name. He's that God from the Old Testament. So here in this ancient hymn, we read every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not a title, it's the name. It's the identity of who Jesus is. So the eyewitnesses realized and the early Christians believed that Jesus is the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity who took on human flesh. So this was widely taught within 10 to 20 years of the death, immediately upon it, widely taught, not just by the, the, uh, the apostles, but by others, which means that within just a few years of Jesus' life, eyewitnesses could remember these events. Detractors could have produced a body. They could have passed it off as a hoax if it had been, but it wasn't. The eyewitnesses were still around and they just didn't have time for it to become legend. It's all real history. So here's, here's just one reason why this becomes important. Have you ever wondered what God is like? Jesus said this in his earthly ministry. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's saying, this, I'm what God is like because I am God in the flesh. I'm embodying the character of our God. So the Son of God, the Old Testament God, said, let the little children come to me. The weak and the unnoticed, the disenfranchised, let them come to me. The Son of God cooked fish over an open fire, which I think would be an amazing event. I bet it was really good fish. The Son of God touched lepers. The Son of God touched a little girl and called her back to life, even though she had been dead. If you've seen the New Testament Jesus, you've seen the Old Testament God. Now, I know a lot of times that bothers people because they look at the Old Testament and say, that's a God of wrath. He and Jesus are completely different. But have you ever read about the time when Jesus was in the temple and he drove out the money changers? He is muttering under his breath. He's angry. He's making a whip. 
and he drives them out because of his furious love. And when you look at the Old Testament, if you read it in that light, you recognize our, old, our God, Old and New Testament, is a God of redeeming love, but sometimes he's also a God of furious love when it comes to people doing right and doing wrong and doing harm. So what he's saying is God became man. That's real. And the question's not about whether he did. It's, it really becomes about why he did. So let's talk a little bit about what this passage says about the heart of Jesus. Verse 7 tells us what Jesus did. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself. Now, what does that mean that he emptied himself? And uh, rather than try to explain it, I'm going to just read a quote from a guy named Michael Reeves about it. I like the way he just put this succinctly. He said, the Apostle Paul wrote that Christ Jesus emptied himself in taking the form of a servant. But it shouldn't be thought that he who was in very nature God emptied something out of himself, like pouring coffee or something out, like emptying a vessel. That's not what he's talking about. Somehow ungodding himself. He did not empty himself of anything that he was. He emptied himself, humbling himself to be God with us in the form of a baby. The one on high became low. The creator became a creature. The word became speechless. The very power of God became a helpless fetus. So in other words, Jesus emptying himself does not mean that he became human instead of God. It means that he was fully God and he took on a real human nature and took on a subordinate role, if you want to say it that way. That is, he lowered himself by taking on and not giving up. So, and this becomes important in the larger context because Paul is having a conversation with the Philippians about considering other people better than yourselves. And so he's using Jesus as the ultimate example of this, as somebody who truly is better than everything and everyone in the cosmos. And he's lowering himself and taking in the form of a servant for us. Uh, taking, uh, he was the most powerful and grand and important, humbled himself for our sakes. Now, two ways this passage says it. Verse 7 says that he took the place of a servant. Uh, he humbled himself. Verse 7, he took the form of a servant. Similar to that idea of what, whatever God is, you know, the, the, who being the form of God, whatever God is, Jesus is. Whatever a servant is, that was Jesus. He took the role of a servant for us. But then he pushes it even further for us in verse 8. He says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, these verses are packed with all kinds of wonderful ideas. But let's deal with really the, with a, one of the most significant truths and, and the big picture to this. Jesus became human. He became a servant in order to die. He became human. Everything that we are, he became. He became fully man, which mean he, means he, had, he has all the essential qualities of human being. Now, he doesn't have sin. He never had a sin nature as did Adam after he entered into sin. But he was a sinless human being, as was Adam before he sinned and fell in the garden. But Jesus did everything that Adam failed to do. Adam failed as the first man, and Jesus succeeded as the true man. 
Jesus did everything that Adam was supposed to do, but didn't. Adam was to take the raw materials of an unbroken world and do something wonderful. And Jesus took the broken materials of a fallen world and did something wonderful by redeeming and restoring and healing it. And he obeyed Adam uh, uh, where, the rest, where Adam and the rest of us failed. And he tells us why he did. Verse eight, it says he died as a sinner. He was hung on a cross. He took the humiliation of the cross. Now, in terms of humanity and the Romans at that point, only the worst of criminals were hung on a cross according to the Romans. But that's not why Jesus died that way. The reason Jesus died on a cross is because of what the Old Testament, Deuteronomy says. In Deuteronomy 21, 23, it says that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Anyone hung on a tree is cursed. And so it's saying that Jesus became cursed for us. He took, Jesus became fully man. He took the sins of man onto the cross with him and he took our curse. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He became a sacrifice for us. He willingly took a lower place. So the creator became the creature. The king took the place of the servant. The judge took the place of the condemned. The son took the place of the sinner. He gave up his status so that we and became our sacrifice. He became cursed so that we could be cured. That's why he did that. So why would Jesus take on flesh? It's because you and I matter to him. Humanity matters. That's why he came. And that's, that's the nature of the gospel. Not that we choose to live for God, but that God and his son chose to die for us. And we get that backwards sometimes. I heard a story not too long ago. There was a, there was a man who was at a, telling his, uh, giving his testimony at a men's breakfast or something. At the end uh, of telling his testimony, a man came up to him and said, my brother, that was a fine testimony you gave. You talked a lot about God, but you didn't mention your own part in salvation. To which the man who just told his story said this, you're right, I did leave that out. My part was to run away from God as fast as I could. And God's part was to run after me until he caught me. That's the gospel, is God pursues us. The Bible is a record. This is from another writer. The Bible is a record of God's intervening grace in the lives of people who don't seek it, who don't deserve it, who continually resist it, and who don't appreciate it after they've been saved by it. And so what happened 2,000 years ago was that God came and showed up in a place where we least expected him. And we realize now that we were encountering someone great and fantastic and regal in the spot where we live with our dirt, with our rubbish. And we find that there's a king standing in our midst. Uh, there's a quote, a little story about Queen Elizabeth that's been making the rounds, which I loved. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Ray Cortez shared it at Seven Rivers when we, have, when we didn't meet here because of the hurricane. Um, and Ray shared this story. I've tracked it down. It's a, it's a tweet. I think his name is Robert Cunningham is where it originated. And this is what, uh, he tells a story and he says he got it from uh, somebody who actually was, was in the know. They would, he would have been there in the, the palace. But he said, every legislative session, uh, the Queen of England, uh, this is a while back, and this has been going on for decades, centuries. 
He says it's a very regal tradition. She would wear a crown. She'd wear all of her royal robes. She'd march up these stairs, and she would walk down this long hallway, and as she's walking down the hallway, as they're beginning to uh, begin parliament, all of her soldiers would stand in the hallway, and they'd take their swords, and they would hit it on the old stone walls, and it would cause these sparks to fly into the floor. Ching! So she's walking down, you hear the rattle of sabers. Ching! And then the sparks come out. Ching! And the sparks come out as she's walking down. And it's just very kind of regal and impressive ceremony. Well, she started to get a little older and not able to go up the stairs. And so they decided one year, we're going to have to let the queen come up the, the elevator. And so she didn't walk up the stairs, but she rode on the elevator. And so as they were going up, uh, as they were going to the place where she's supposed to, up the stairs where she's supposed to walk out, uh, the, the guard who's never done this before pushes the wrong button on the elevator and they open up on the service floor. And Alice, who's a maintenance worker in the, the palace, she's not looking where she is. She's just trying to like, okay, the doors are open, press the button, just goes right in. And she has pinned the Queen of England up against the wall in the elevator. And, and uh, Alice looks up and, and drops an expletive. And uh, the door shuts behind her, and nobody moves to press any of the buttons. So she's just standing there, and people are thinking, what do we do? And all of a sudden, this laughter fills the elevator. And Queen Elizabeth, pinned to the wall, is just cackling, laughing at this whole scene. And so the guard is getting ready to press the button to open the doors again, and Queen Elizabeth says no. And uh, she says, press the button. And so when they arrive on the floor, there are all the soldiers waiting to do their, their swords on the wall. The doors open, and there is Queen Elizabeth, and by her side, dressed in her maintenance uniform, is Alice. And so Alice walks the corridor as the sparks are flying, and they, they receive the queen and Alice. Now, the guy telling the story on, online said, but that's not the best part. The best part is that every year after that, the queen invited Alice to come into Buckingham Palace for high tea, and she became a lifelong friend of the queen. Now, when Ray told this story, he ends this great question with this great question, wouldn't you love to be Alice? And he responded with the answer, you are Alice. Those of you who know Jesus, you are Alice. You've been invited into the palace. In fact, you're better than Alice because the Bible says not only Jesus did, not only did he appear to us in the mundane place, not only did he die for us, not only was he resurrected for us, and not only is he interceding for us right now, but we're adopted into the royal family. We're adopted into the family of Christ. And so this passage is talking about Jesus who came to us in our brokenness and our sin, our faults and flaws. He came to where we are. He became like us, and he's drawn us in. So what do we do with that? Well, this passage also tells us something important about Jesus' people. See, ever since the resurrection, uh, in every era and every area, there are people who are willing to examine the documents, look at the evidence, and study the life of Jesus, with, whose cultural beliefs became displaced because of the testimony about Jesus. And they came to this conclusion. There is no other explanation than that Jesus Christ is exactly who the Bible says he is and who the early church says he is and who Christians today believe he is, the incarnate son of God. And people find that the sheer weight of the glory of the reality of who Jesus is displaces all of those old beliefs. And so here in this passage... He says, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. 
Jesus Christ is the Lord. Every tongue will confess. Now, by that, he doesn't mean that everybody's going to believe, but by that, he means that at the end, nobody's going to be able to escape that reality. But if you come to believe, um, the Bible, which he describes here as bowing before him in dependence, humility, worship, and loyalty, um, he's saying, then you receive all of these blessings. Now, I did a little research on that because I was thinking is, that almost feels like it was a creedal statement. Like if you were a Christian, you were maybe supposed to say something when you came to believe. Like we, make, we take vows in our church about belief. But to say that I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven above and earth below and, and underneath. And I believe that he is Lord. And so I did a little research in scripture. And these phrases that appear here in Philippians are taken largely from the Old Testament. So the part about every knee bowing, every tongue will, will confess or swear. That's from Isaiah chapter 45 verse 23. And I've looked... Um, at the other part about uh, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, where did, where did that come from in the Old Testament? Well, the first time it shows up that I can find is really in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39. It may show up earlier than that. So it's God speaking to his people. But then there's this one amazing story. It's in Joshua chapter 2. It's about a woman by the name of Rahab. And Rahab, as far as... Uh, we know from scripture and from what was told about her life was a prostitute who lived in Jericho. And when the Israelites were going to enter into the promised land, they sent some spies in and they went to Jericho and they stayed at her hotel and uh, she hid them from the Jericho authorities because she knew that these were people of the Lord God. And so after the authorities leave, leave, she's hidden them well, she's coming and telling them what to do, but she makes this profession of faith. It's fantastic. So Joshua chapter 2, verse 11, 11, she says, I know that Yahweh, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So what does she end up doing? She says, I recognize who your God is. And she sided with their, their God and his people. She threw in her lot with God's people. She sought salvation from, uh, from God's judgment. She believed in Israel's God and it completely changed her life. It changed where she was living. It changed who she was living for. It changed what she was living for. Um, she was not just going to be a good person from Jericho any longer. She, lived, she was going to live as God called her to live. And she appears in Hebrews chapter 11 in the great hall of fame of faith. All these Old Testament believers. Rahab appears there. Rahab uh, is in the line of Christ. Her children, her grandchildren became kings. And eventually one of them became the king of kings. And so we see a complete change. There's a break with my old culture and there's a change in the way that I'm living now. So what does that mean for us? Well, to bow before sometimes might require you to stand against, right? If, but if you think that in this passage, that's really what it means, you might need to rethink that. You might be right, but you might be a little wrong because it, it doesn't mean that we deal with the individualist in our culture. We stand against individualism what it means first and foremost is in our hearts we deal with our own individualism because that's really what he's talking about in this passage. Not who I'm going to stand against, but standing against the individualism in my own heart and dealing with that myself because that's the whole context. In dealing in this passage with bowing the knee to Christ and bowing before him, he's also talking about uh, the person who's right before us the person standing right in front of us, how we deal with that person. Not, not the liberal establishment, not the conservative establishment, not the media, not 
the academia, not any of those things that we get, we would say, well, I need to stand against this. He's saying, well, who's standing right in front of you? Because that's the person you're called to love. Let me, let me read this for you. This is in Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So if you're confessing Jesus Christ as Lord in this passage, it means that you're bowing before him, but you're also loving the person who's standing before you, whoever that person is. You're bowing in service to that person too because that's what Jesus has called us to do. So what does that begin to look like? Well, Jesus, who is literally the greatest and best, the creator, the son of love, the master of providence, the sacrificing servant, the eternal son of God, he took the lowest point. And when we recognize he is so great, we do the same. He doesn't just give us an example, he gives us a new heart because at the heart of the universe is the heart of Jesus and that changes us. And when people recognize that, it changes them. So a couple of vignettes. Uh, some of you may have heard of Robert McQuilkin. He was, the, he was the president at Columbia International University. He'd been a missionary in Japan. You ever heard of him? You're, you're from that negative, would you? No? You heard Robert McQuilkin. Well, in, uh, he had all these accolades. Everybody knew. People knew who he was. He was a big name. In 1990, Robert McQuilkin resigned the presidency at Columbia International University to care for his wife, Muriel who was in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease. He gave up his career, he gave up the accolades to take care of his wife. Uh, Henry Nouwen, in the summer of 1985, Henry Nouwen left his role as a professor at Harvard Divinity where he was widely recognized as this big name and uh, a lot of evangelicals and others read him even though he was from a different tradition. Uh, he joined the Larche community in, in France, which is, uh, they took care of adult people with uh, learning disabilities and, and certain severe challenges. Well, Henry spent nine months living and sharing in France, and then eventually he quit his professor role at Harvard Divinity and went to do the same thing in Canada with people who didn't know he was famous, with people who didn't know he mattered, who people who just knew him as Henry. He took a lesser role. Some of you in here, as you look at how you serve, how you serve in the world, you say, I'm not doing anything big. I'm not doing anything grand. I'm not a professor. I'm not a preacher. I'm not doing anything like that. I'm just doing what God has set in front of me. And you know what? That's beautiful. Because that's what he's calling us to do in this passage, is to love the people around us well. Even though we get no accolades, we get no applause, we get nothing except knowing that this is exactly what Jesus is calling us to do. He's calling us to serve the people around us even though we don't get awards, we don't get medals around our neck, we don't get any of that. 
We're taking care of the people around us who have needs. They have physical needs. We're taking care of the people around us who have uh, spiritual needs. We take care of the people around us who have financial needs. We make ourselves servants to other people around us because that's Christ-like. And according to this passage, it's God-like. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on tightly, but he made himself nothing for the sake of the needs of the people around him that he loved. So some of us in here need to take encouragement and be comforted to say, I'm not doing anything big. Yeah, but what you're doing is really hard and you're putting others before yourself. And some of us, you know, I'm a fat, lazy cat. Did I say that earlier? Um, some of us need to be challenged, challenged to take on taking care of other people, to say, as exactly as he says here, is look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others to look to the needs of others. What are the needs in your community? What are your needs in your neighborhood? Who are the people around you that are struggling and suffering? And sometimes it's just making yourself available to them and saying, just like Jesus stepped into our world and was incarnate in a place nobody expected him, to step into the life of somebody else and say, I'm here to help, a redemptive presence because Jesus has done the same for me. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I'm so grateful for the comfort of this passage. I'm grateful for the encouragement of this passage. I'm grateful that we have on the throne of the cosmos a God who gives of himself uh, the images that people present of you as this tyrant, this monster, this ogre seated in space who demands things is so wrong. That's not who you are. You're a God who humbles himself, who comes into the world and redeems the wicked, redeems people who deserve nothing from you. And I'm so grateful because I'm among them. And I pray for me and I pray for all of us in here pray that we would embody this reality to know that we are loved by you and cherished by you and that would transform us so that we would love others and cherish others as well would you bless us and would you be with us would you take this sermon make it a part of our lives we ask it all in jesus name amen thank you for joining us on this podcast a production of seven rivers villages church in wildwood florida Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.